0: tensions presented by bhdp where we discuss trends in architectural interior design and the competing priorities or tensions that arise from integrating new ideas into existing organizations enterprises and institutions this episode is titled change your space change your culture we are talking with rex miller founder of mindshift and author of several books including change your space change your culture the title of this podcast and the healthy workplace nudge He is joined by BHDP's Patrick Donnelly, who also contributed on the books. We will be discussing extraneous factors that influence our workday and space and how identifying a company's culture can help optimize the workplace. I'm your host, Brian Trainer, a workplace strategist for BHDP. Let's get started with Rex
1: Miller. I run an organization called Mindshift. I'm the founder. We're a futures advisory and we focus on three main elements. One is thought leadership. We help our clients become thought leaders in their area of domain, primarily by solving complex problems that kind of constrain all the stakeholders in the system, like projects that come in late and over budget, or employees that are disengaged, or the health and well-being, or education. The second thing we do is we help leaders take this information and bring it to their own company. So we do a lot of change leadership. We don't like to call it change management. And the distinction between the way we approach it is we deal with what we call the right brain side of change, the emotional resistance side through something called shadow culture. So we help organizations really unpack and identify their shadow culture. And then the other element is we work a lot on large, complex construction projects, and we deal with the early collaborative alignment of the teams, so those are primarily just the soft skills that are beginning to find their way into the architecture and construction world. What we've identified is that every cult- every company has four different cultures simultaneously. Mm-hmm. And the challenge is that leadership primarily focuses on the first one, which we call the aspirational culture. So that's either the mission, vision, and values, or it's what they think they look like on their best day. So if you think of a company's goal, they want to become the best version of who they are
0: like their dating profile. <laughs> <This is laughs> well, so
1: that's the problem, you know, leaders go off in these retreats and they come up with stuff and they make it up and they come back and they try to impose it on something that's already there, there there's already a culture there. The second one is what we call the legacy culture. So that's what made you successful in the past but won't help you become successful in the future. Lots of challenges with that. The third one is something I picked up from Patrick in in terms of the name, and it's the future travelers. Those Uh people who are the outliers in the organization, but give you a picture a window of what you could be, what your potential could be. And then we get to the most powerful form of culture in the organization, that's the shadow culture. And the shadow culture are the invisible attitudes, habits, values, and behaviors that run the place when you're not there. Because when management comes in, or leadership, everybody changes behavior. So we have a process of helping companies identify those four cultures. And there's a real power once you can name it. For example, let's say shadow culture in in one company moving from hierarchy to collaborative, maybe it's called the entitlement culture. Because the people who are the most important get the best offices and things like that. So naming it gives you the ability to then do something with it. It gives you power to actually address it and it gives people common language to say, oh, that sounds like entitlement culture, is that what we want to do? so it's a very fun process, interesting, easy process to do. We we make it very simple. And that's a lot of the work we do. Well, and, and some of this work
2: that we've done together with Rex is about unpacking and packing. Unpacking what the culture is. Right. Giving words on how to describe it and talk about it. Then pack that up so you can take it to the future. If you don't, then you leave the stuff you need behind, and some of that stuff might be stuff that you need. And a lot of change, the metaphor for going on a vacation is a great metaphor for change. It's like, where are we going? How long is it going to take? Are we going to stop on the way? What are we going to do when we get there? Is it going to be fun? (laughs) Who's going to be with us? Okay, now ask yourself those questions inside your organization changing and going to the future. So if you pack that up and put it to the third culture, the future travelers, that's what's important is because you, you already have today examples of what the future could be. We call it appreciative inquiry. Hmm. There's a discipline that you can go through to try to identify right. best practices and understanding where we're actually doing stuff right. Analyze that, unpack that, pack that up, and then scale it. We tend to be problem solvers, great problem solvers, especially in the design field but we also need to be great solutions finders, and that's what Future Travelers is about. So you look at all these four cultural types that Rex is talking about, because it does influence workplace health and wellness and well-being, and certainly you can see at its base it is culture. You can't get deep cultural change without doing assessment, I think, and, and really leveraging things like workplace, or leveraging things like strategic consulting to help you get there. But you can begin the conversation if you get people together talking about what are the opportunities that we're facing, what are the obstacles? Mm-hmm. And getting early read on that is really important when, you're, when one of the identified goals of what's next is
0: organizational transformation what's next as far as people within organizations like what are you seeing on the horizon what are people talking about thinking about they're busy yeah <laughs> everybody's busy Everybody's really. you know busy. in the
1: coaching uh, that we're in the doing present. people are just trying to figure out how to keep up mm-hmm. how to manage their stakeholders better how to set boundaries so there's a lot of anxiety and stress in the workplace and that's showing up I think in the conversations we're seeing in the national press on mental health and opioids. What we discovered in the Healthy Workplace Nudge is that corporations have had the wellness cart in front of the horse. (laughs) The front end should be well-being and that leads to wellness and what we're finding is that the workplace is the number one source of stress that's reported of high stress and then if you look at what stress does mentally and physically it leads you down to unhealthy coping behaviors and so the workplace is is the battleground for health and well-being for the future and if you think about what stress does so think about cognitive work, right? Mm-hmm. What part of your brain is the cognitive work? That's the prefrontal cortex. Yep. So stress happens a little bit further down in at the amygdala level, so that's the flight, fight, or freeze side of the brain. And it's there's just a little bit of level modulation between stress that gets you working, up in the morning, thinking, ready to perform, get ready for a podcast like this, and then a little bit more stress, and then all of a sudden, you're in lockdown mode, and it shuts down that prefrontal cortex. So then what happens is you throw in a deadline stressor or a change stressor, and people begin to shut down. And so we don't see what's happening in the workplace in terms of the damage to the work because people aren't mentally... Available because of the stress that they're experiencing.
2: So it seems, Rex, in addition to identifying that as an obstacle, it seems there's also opportunities to unleash that if we were actually to examine the brain of an organization and understand where those stressors are to mitigate that or to really focus on how we optimize that for individuals could unleash some organizational potential.
1: Well, even more to the point. Every organization has a central nervous system, which is the aggregate of everybody's central mm. nervous system. So we just finished a book that we sent to the publisher for education, and we brought in some neurocardiologists, a, a new pioneering, educa- University of North Texas, Dallas is pioneering new mental health elements of teaching for Mm. teacher resiliency because of the burnout rate. You're seeing a lot
2: of this inside education and in the workplace, so there's a bit of a universality when you start looking at healthy brain, healthy brain activity, and and the emotional side of performance. That's part of what's next.
1: Well, and part of what's next was we started this in the Healthy Workplace Nudge by looking at sports technology on resiliency. They call the Tom Brady effect, getting better as you get older. And I I tracked it down and there's this technology called WHOOP. So you'll see on my LinkedIn, hashtag Daily WHOOP. (laughs) So I went to Boston to see this company and they're measuring a new metric that really tells you about resiliency and it's called heart rate variability, Hmm. HRV. And the two basic measures of your resiliency are high heart rate variability, Mm -hmm. and low resting heart rate. And how do you get there? So we started measuring that, and then we started seeing that there's a relationship with this with the central nervous system. It's called your autonomic nervous system. There's Mm -hmm. two sides. There's the on switch, which is called your sympathetic nervous system. So that's the accelerator in your system, the fight, flight, perform, part of it and then there's what's called the parasympathetic, which is your rest digest side of the equation where you recover. And understanding that balance and relationship, we think is going to start coming into the workplace and part of that future thinking, we talked about the teacher athlete, Johnson and Johnson's, they call it the corporate athlete. So if you look at what a corporate athlete does, what performance is, you're on and then you rest. Do you oh not? Yeah. But in two the, sides of the nervous system. In the workplace. We're on all day long, meeting, 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 meeting.
0: Yeah, and that's what I was going to ask is there was such a push to m- optimize productivity. Like that was the primary focus of all business in recent decades. That push to productivity seems to be driving productivity down
1: because they don't see the value of the the downtime, right? It's totally against how we're wired. There's a phenomenon called ultradian rhythms, which are similar to circadian rhythms. It's the daily cycle of energy and you feel it during the day mm-hmm. how you have kind of a peak and then you kind of wane
2: yeah my peak is after three cups of coffee <laughs> maybe we can but get that's into a coping, that later yeah that's a coping, that's mechanism. A coping mechanism that's, a coping mechanism <laughs> yeah. that's actually
1: it's, it's actually straining your adrenal gland but we won't go into that but, pond, but think yes. about a few modifications yeah. so you come in from a commute it's stressful oh yes what if you had a transition zone in the workplace and a time set aside where you could just wind down, get your mind, because you have all this residual stuff in your brain of what mm-hmm. you just experienced. Think about meetings instead of hour long meetings, 45 minute meetings, and then you have a 15 minute transition. Because you do have this residual effect of a meeting and going into another meeting where your mind hasn't shifted yet, so you can't mm-hmm. be at your best. Right. I think we're going to start seeing us design the day better so that we can optimize, not maximize, people's performance because, as you say, that's causing declines and burnout and bad coping behaviors, but (laughs) to optimize.
0: You're hitting all the things that I'm fascinated by. I, I read a report. It was a case study where they tasked people with coming up with new pasta names, and what they did is they had three control groups, and the first group they said, all right, we want you to come up with new pasta names, and they gave them five examples that all ended with the letter I. They waited for five minutes or something like that, and then they had them three minutes to complete the task, and they jumped in immediately, and they came up with a lot. When they had time to think about it, but they all, most of them ended in the letter I. The next group, they gave them the instructions they had to start immediately. They didn't come up with as many because they didn't have time to process it, but most of theirs ended in the letter I. The third group, they gave them the same instructions, the same five examples, but then they had them play a game for a few Mm. minutes beforehand. There were objects on the screen that they had to follow around with a mouse, and when it changed colors, they had to hit a space bar. So really simple, simple game. They came up with almost as many solutions as the first group that had time to think about it first, but they had more divergent results ending in different letters, so it was like more creative, but with the same output. Mm -hmm. And I thought that that was fascinating that there's this idea of positive distraction, and you can still yield productivity, but then also create more diverse results.
1: And you've also got the principle in there of the residual effect of where their minds were. Right. It came into the experience, so imagine you have a meeting, your very first meeting is a hard meeting, Yes. (laughs) okay? What kind of emotional state are you going to bring into the second meeting? So if you don't have a transition, and if you don't have a protocol for kind of resetting your mind and your emotions and settling down your stress, you know, your heart rate and those things, then you bring that negative energy into the room, and we know negative energy is contagious.
2: It's, it's interesting, and Brian, your example is a great example of using time differently as you're coming in or moving through activity, and I'm thinking about many of us, some who may be listening to the podcast, in the strategic design field, do something called day in the life. Hmm. We're trying to describe, we use the power of story to try and describe a narrative that you use the phrase design the day better. Now. Right now, we're designing the day better relative to the physical environment and people not being able to imagine themselves working differently or having activities that actually are healthier, helping them imagine that they can work differently in a positive way. What I'm hearing you say from what's next relative to people and performance is designing in not just how you're going to use space, but potentially how you're going to change the narrative of the way in which I approach my work. And I'm thinking maybe what's next is layering that on top of a day in the life relative for at least us who are in the strategic design space that gets really at people in an even deeper way. Am I off base with that?
1: No, and I think part of that with the new narrative are the new metaphors. So we just finished a book on education and we were looking at the conditions and one of the metaphors that came up is schools are probably going to become the new field hospitals in America, mass units, because of the the kinds of emotional needs. We kept on hearing in education that kids are not ready to learn, they Mm -hmm. come not ready to learn. Mm -hmm. Well, they come not ready because of the emotional chaos at home. So now teachers have to not just teach, but they have to deal with all these emotional needs even before they can teach. So coming up with names for new roles, new metaphors on what it is we really do. What's the name of
0: that book, by the way?
1: It is Whole, W-H-O-L-E, What Teachers Need to Help Students Thrive.
0: Later today, I'm going to University of Cincinnati. We're working with a cross-disciplinary group to talk about the future of work. When we ask, hey, we want you to give a presentation, they're like, well, what what do you want us to talk about? No, we want to know what you're interested in. So the teacher that we're working with, Aaron Bradley, is fantastic. He's trying to get them to fall in love with the problem and not Mm -hmm. the solution, changing their mindsets. Don't work Mm -hmm. towards the grade. Get excited about what you're working on. But I don't think it's just productivity anymore. I mean, in change your space, change your culture.
2: We really looked at the the truth is, is it's really more about engagement. It's about engagement. It's about relationship with your direct superior or the people that you're working with that enables those that that productivity gain to happen through innovation and real sustainable change. So, we're realizing the, cut, the, the root of all of this is really more about understanding people better, understanding each other better, relying on each other in such a way that you're not expected to do everything in an isolated way, but you're relying on a team. Seven Habits of Highly Effective People is a brilliant book, and, and I still follow its principles. And Stephen Covey, I've heard live tell this story about the manager of the lumber team coming by, and he's got a couple of guys with the saw just sawing away and making zero, it's burning, I mean it's sawing so poorly. He looked at the guys. and says, guys, why are not you sharpen the saw? They're like, we're too busy sawing, dummy. <laughs> yeah. And I think that you opened this conversation talking about how busy everyone is, and we leave it up to others to be healthy enough to say, I'm going to go sharpen my saw. And I think what one of the trends that we're seeing is that it's the corporations, the organizations and now I think the schools that are succeeding are when leadership says, okay, we need to participate in the conversation of what a sharp saw looks like and how we get it sharp and how we keep it sharp. Now companies are saying, well, I'm struggling to attract and retain talent. Well, if I can explain to them that one of my values is your health and well-being. And it's commiserate or it connects to a personal value that a potential employee has or current employee has. The tendency of that person to stay with you or come with you and be productive while they're there, there's value in that. There's high value in that. Now it's not a simple number, it's a softer measure. But I think that's part of what's next. But I think
1: you can create metrics. One of the things we found when we're getting into kind of culture and things, that organizations who create leading indicators you can measure the leading indicators. The challenge is everybody's looking at the profit returns, the, the test grades, and and so that busyness syndrome is, I can't afford to not look busy mm. because that is the metric. That's the norm. That's yeah. the metric, so changing those metrics of what effectiveness looks like versus If I'm looking busy, if I show up, come to work, then I know I'm checking off the box and the boss Mm -hmm. knows I'm working as opposed to I could be more productive someplace else. That management really has to get into that kind of conversation as to what does the saw, you know, what does sharpening the saw Mm -hmm. look like.
2: I also think emotional intelligence is playing a, a part of this. And the easy way to start the conversation is to talk about what does it look like if you define what results you're searching for. You know, at BHDP, we, design places and experiences that affect key behaviors that drive strategic results for our clients. What we're learning is you can do so much of that with design, but if you're able to help them understand the importance of defining the results first and defining what success looks like, that can not only be applied to having a successful Mm. architectural interior design project. But it also can have a huge impact on whether or not the person working inside that space is going to be successful. If the manager is able to help them define what success looks like, and rather than manage according to activity, manage according to whether or not we're achieving the results we defined as success. Yep, that's one of the reasons that we and Brian and I do a lot of work on the trends and tensions roundtable series in our knowledge community. Hmm having those conversations, and I put honestly less emphasis on talking to our clients or talking to thought leaders, I put more emphasis on listening to them. I think that that information is out there, but I don't know that we're necessarily when we're pushing so hard Mm -hmm. to move an organization forward that we're necessarily living reflectively and taking the time to emotionally and mentally digest what we're learning and apply it to what we're, we're doing. We're designing places that are physical places, but we're now taking into account work that is happening through tech.
1: Right.
2: That's, yeah. And to accommodate that, we're, we're watching as groups of people working together are getting smaller and smaller. Two or three people rooms, rather than six to eight people rooms, but guess what? The groups that are working on stuff are not two to three people, there're 5 to 6 people but 2 to 3 of them are connecting through technology. It's fascinating to me to think about the term network and what does that mean if you look at it in a larger context?
1: Some of the firms that we're working with are asking the question, at least architects, are we a technology company that builds mm-hmm. things? So those are fundamental questions as to who are we going to be? Those are those adaptive questions, you know, who are we really
2: But it it underscores the potential of and the importance of a technology architect. Is someone who really truly understands. You know that technology is working because you don't see, see, feel, hear it Mm -hmm. um, because it's working. Part of what's next is how do you become a designer of that work, a designer of the way in which we deploy some of those systems so that we're effective to deal with the issue of being distributed. Because these, I I don't, they're wrestling with that. Uh, Many of us deploy the tools, design thinking tools that BHDP uses. But I tend to not have work process conversations without having the technology conversation right alongside.
1: And with that technology conversation, which I think your firm is well positioned to do, my son would call the meta conversation. Marshall McLuhan would say the medium is the message. So we talk a lot about the artifacts of technology and what technology does, but we don't really talk about the relational cultural implications of what technology forces us to do. And So we're not looking at technology through that lens, what is the implied use? What is the natural use of this technology? A podcast is a form of technology. It, It forces you to do things in a certain way, in an order, in relationship. Helping companies understand what this really is to you, not just how do you use it, I think is part of the important conversation of design thinking that you, you guys bring to the table so that it's applied right, so that you're matching environment and the culture to the tools that you want to use.
0: Yeah. That's interesting because when we talk about innovation with some of our clients, one of their big struggles is what technology do we invest in? And so it's the better question, well, who are you and what are you trying to do? And then you'll find the technology that's tailored to that. Yeah, it could be technology is the enabler. Yeah. But to do what? Right. Yes, Exactly.
1: Well, and that, yeah. that's that's the huge problem. In the, so the, the example is the huge problem in the classroom. They give all the kids little tablets mm-hmm basically just reading. So that's not what the tablet was made for. It was a, it's an interactive tool and it's a connective tool. So looking at those things are the deeper questions that I think architects are trained to ask, that clients don't know to ask, yeah,
0: and the other thing that we see from technology, with us we have a av- viewity, it's sensor technology and it's about you know measuring people in space and how it's being utilized, and what we're finding too it's clients are going, well, now what do we do with all this data? How do you use that to totally inform decisions? Right. Or what data needs to be collected? We, we do that in our roundtables. Mm-hmm. Data comes up sometimes and it's like, well, what's the right information and then how do you leverage it and what's the real decision and how do you combine that with soft metrics? It's just fascinating to me. that. People think the technology is the solution, but it's really just a vehicle to ask better questions or different questions. Right. I don't know. Right. It's yeah. It's definitely an enabler
2: for work. It buoys up work. You can have a new technology, and I think this happens a lot. I mean, when the iPad came out, mm-hmm. I think Steve Jobs said, when asked, "What is this for?" He said, "I don't know. <laughs> the market's going to determine what mm-hmm. this is for." They made it cool. They made it interesting. It was related to technology they knew was successful. Sometimes tech will define its own realm, but most of the time it's about supporting people. And what I hear a lot is, can you make it more intuitive? And I think we have a whole generation of people where it just simply is more intuitive because I'm raising some of these (laughs) technology and digital natives and being a digital immigrant myself, trying to learn the language, and they're helping me.
1: So, for my benefit, you're hiring young adults. What are you finding that is kind of a strength of them coming through the education system? What are you finding that you're having to make up the difference in, in terms of getting them workplace ready or Mm. life ready.
2: It's fascinating (laughs) how facile they are with technology and being able to to utilize technology to manipulate it and to visualize things. What I don't find is what was the base of architectural education, though they understand theory, the application of that into a practical solution, Mm. or to utilize that to design a building or an addition or a renovation, because we're often working with something that already exists, it's not just on a flat sheet of paper. And understanding how you put those things together. I think traditionally that's been the case with architecture, where you learn on the job a lot of the technical aspects of it and with interior design. But I also find the younger workforce to be very open minded. And this is not an experience I hear from others. And what we do here is not traditional architecture, it's very, it's wonderful architecture and interior design. But it's about something bigger, it's about designing for people, so we have to understand people first. That's something that they learn when they get here, but they're open-minded about it. Once we do that, and large part, a big part of the practice that Brian is developing with us is the back end of that. How does change actually happen? If you understand people, then you design for them. How do we enable folks to utilize space in the change practice? You have to be open-minded to say, oh, is that architecture? What well, is the way we practice it here? Um, uh, conscientious about how I share this because many people come into our space who are designing space for it. They love it. It's cool. And they're like, we want this for us. We want it to be cool like this. And we're like, yeah, let's understand who you are and what you're trying to do first. It is cool to work here. It is cool looking space, but let's make sure that we're designing for your future, mm-hmm. not for somebody else's. I mean, we're doing storyboarding. You know, we're, we're trying to craft narrative. We're using narrative actually to ideate. It is actually, a, and I've learned a lot from going through MindShift, and many who participate in it are fascinated in MindShift as much as they're fascinated with the topic, because how we ideate, how we pull ideas together is, is of use and of value to all of us because much of the work that we do and our listeners do, it's not just about knowledge work, it's the conceptual age, as Dan Pink would say. And we're doing conceptual work and and trying to explain the invisible to try to create value that's not there yet Um, or design something that isn't going to be inhabited for a couple of years and hopefully is going to be utilized for 20 to 30 more. There is a lot of alignment in terms of the way you enable people to think and the way you use design uh, collectively to co-create.
0: Well, thank you both for being here. This was good. Yeah, you're welcome. This yeah. was fun. It was yeah. fun. It was good. And yeah. I, anytime we get into brain science, I'm all about that. <laughs> <I'm> like, <laughs> that can we talk, can we talk <laughs> more <laughs> about the default mode, modal network? So we're planting the seeds for
1: the next book project. Yeah. Right? And it's called, right now, the code word is Project Unwind. So if anybody wants to find out how to get involved, yeah. just reach out, and we'll, we'll tell you where we're at with it.
0: RexMiller.com,
1: right? Yes. Or right. on uh, LinkedIn. LinkedIn. Yeah. Yeah. I think
0: that's it, Michael. We'll that's, do a wrap. that's a wrap. Thank you, Brian. Yeah, yeah right. thanks, Rex. Thank you for joining Trends Intentions presented by BHDP for this episode, Change Your Space, Change Your Culture, with Rex Miller of Mind Shift and Patrick Donnelly with BHDP. If you appreciate what you've heard, please rate, subscribe, and give us a review. I am Brian Trainer, your host, and I hope you'll join us for another episode of Trends Intentions to see what topics drive design.